Hey, everybody. Brian here. Quick note that Chris's microphone is a little low at the beginning, but about five minutes in, I discover that and fix it. So just bear with me. You can still hear him just a little low and it gets better quickly. Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Saturday, March 5th. I'm actually here live in New York with Brian, and we have a special guest today. Uh, Charlie? How you doing? <laughs> Charlie, o- Charlie O'Donnell of uh, Brooklyn Bridge Venture. Um, uh, That's me. Yes. Uh, we're, we're sitting here. We should also say that we're sitting here in... Um, my kitchen again, mm-hmm. like we did a few months ago, and um, the the listeners said that this was one of their favorite episodes when Uh-oh. we did this the last time. Oh, with Alex. Yes, with Alex yeah. uh, Kantrowitz. Yeah. Um, this is the shortest walk I've ever had to <laughs> go for a podcast. Uh, I appreciate that. That's good. Anybody else in Park Slope who has a park who has a podcast, I'm willing to come on. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, you know, it's 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 good to be in in actual physical meat space with people because it's useful to understand um, people's moods and things like that. Especially uh, this week, there's no way we can do this without talking about um, the Ukraine situation. And um, I'm gonna kick it to you, Charlie, in a second, but I'm gonna tell you the way that I framed the conversation about the Ukraine stuff uh, this week, which was this. I feel I'm concerned that the tech industry in general um, is still in the 90s in the sense that if you have a um, social media platform, what you want to do is, because of scale, um, just run one platform for the whole world. Um, in the same way uh, in the late 90s or early 2000s, if you're a hardware company or whatever, you, uh, the U.S. is the dominant power. We don't have to worry about pirates so much. Like we can, we can source our goods from anywhere around the world. I'm concerned that the tech world, the tech industry, is not prepared for the 21st century, two decades in, where it's politically not a monoculture where there you you're going to have to make choices you're going to have to make choices in your markets in um, the markets you address and where you get your goods from and things like that um, we've seen the tech industry respond very well i would think so far we can get into that uh to what has happened but um the the dream of the 90s might be dead in terms of it's super easy we're an American company. We're a technology company. What do you think the events of the last two weeks have meant to the tech industry? Well, I'm not so sure it's, it's always been sort of uh, easy for the American tech industry to export itself everywhere. Right, China historically has been a really hard place for American companies to do business, and right? and, and certain companies have decided not to not do just business. not to be there at yeah. all. Yeah. Right, for sure. Um, I, I think what we're seeing now, I think the key word that you mentioned is politically. Right, it's it's not 
market structure. It's not, um, I mean, there's still some IP and you know privacy stuff or whatever, but it's literally speech, media, levels of accept, you know, cultural acceptability, uh, government influence, all of those types of questions. And there are so many different uh, perspectives on, you know, what, who's, whose role it should be to influence the end product when the end product mm. gets consumed by the masses and has a huge amount of influence, mm -hmm. right? So for everybody who says, well, you know, Facebook isn't doing a good job of it, but then somebody else saying, well, I don't know if we want governments doing it either, right? And then there's a whole Web3 faction that says we should just democratically vote on it with our, you know, 98% white male participation, <laughs> you know, kind of DAOs and, 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 and whatever. But, but that's almost the point that I'm trying to make is that that assumption of the late 90s, early 2000s, of uh, the the idea that if 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 you 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 can create a product, and I know that this is part of the idea of um, uh, it doesn't scale to have to change your product for every market. But do you know what I'm saying? Like the tech. Well, I agree. I agree with you. I, actually, one one way to think about it is is the product has shifted mm. from being more media than social media, I think. And I know we're talking about different things because, again, uh, the idea that you can create one platform that should be able to exist in 180 right. countries is, maybe that's number one. I, what, actually, what, like, I think that, that what you're, you're getting at is something that's, on the one hand, about efficiency, and about creating a standard product that you can use in lots of places and make a set of assumptions about how that product will be used. And I actually would push back that there haven't been uh, certain types of, whether it's localization or adaptations to local markets or local laws or local rules or local moderation policies. You know, for example, certain products have been banned in France for a long time, you know, any Nazi paraphernalia, for example. Um, so. There are and have become, I think, increasingly sophisticated ways that those products do adapt to local conditions on the ground. I think maybe what you're pointing to, to some degree, is the level of, um, like, maybe if it, whether these things and the rules apply on a macro or micro level. Specifically, you know, when it comes to the type of moderation that exists, you know, uh, Facebook might, you know, or I guess in this case, Facebook has been banned um, in, in Russia. Uh, WhatsApp and Instagram are still operating there. Um, however, in other places, um, you know, Twitter will just pull out altogether because the level of, of moderation or censorship, depending on you know which side of the uh, moderation you're feeling, I suppose, um, is not worth it for them or it's too difficult. Uh, in other words, the cost to bear of actually trying to discern between, you know, or, or to be in the fog of war is that these systems are not really set up for that, to do it in real time, to evaluate what's good and what's not, and then to get on the, the wrong side of the government or, or something else. And so. I do think that uh, tech companies in particular have been feeling uh, more pressure than certainly several years ago when it was really just about adoption and it was you know, creating you know, new market opportunities, growth. You think about what happened to Twitter in India 
you know, where the government, you know, was either threatening to or did arrest, you know, people who worked there. Um, you know, that is when you really need the rubber of the road. That, that is kind of my point is, are we reaching a world where people will have to make a choice? Where you have to make the choice that are you? Sorry, can you be specific about the people? Which people? Choices. Yeah. I'm saying companies, major tech platforms. Tech execs. Are you a platform that is from a liberal democratic society, or are you a neutral uh, around the world serving everybody? Is is that what is changing? And and is the tech industry ready for that? If, if, if that were the case, if you had to... Responsibility, right? I'm to talking... To what degree do you want to be responsible for what happens on your platform as opposed to sort of being a neutral, you know, like, you know, desert someplace where things happen and you might own the land, but you take no responsibility for what happens there. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I think that uh, Telegram is one of the few kind of holdouts that's still holding on to this idea that, you know, we're going to let anything happen on the platform. We're only going to remove things where there are actual threats of violence or... You know, their, their list is starting to grow as pressure has mounted on them. But mm-hmm. for mainstream platforms, you know, where, you know, they're getting talked about on, you know, morning shows and are part of the... But that's what I'm saying course. is that, like, is that now this is, the rubber is hitting the road where mm-hmm. choices are going to have to be made. Because, look, if Exxon isn't going to do business in Russia, if Coke hasn't yet severed mm-hmm. ties, but if Coke did... Then, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, if you're, if you are a telegram, mm-hmm. like, and we can get into crypto stuff s- soon, too, but, um, mm-hmm. like, choices, like, this idea, again, as I framed it, of the early 90s, 2000s, where um, the West is ascendant, um, uh, being free markets are ascendant, and there aren't these power blocks around the world. If you're a company, that is as big as a, a Google, um, a Facebook, or an Apple. Could you have to make a choice where we represent a certain set of values politically and we won't do business with people that don't represent that? I'm a little bit cynical <clears throat> about that. Um, I don't think that you know the companies that have shut down or pulling out of Russia at the moment given the price of the ruble and the economic situation in those countries, you think they're losing a lot of money? You think, you think Russia is a, lot, a great place to do business right now? I did, I, I did that on Friday. The, 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 the big five platforms are losing 1% to 2% of their revenue if they shut right, down. Right, right. It, it, it is a lot of these decisions are getting made because they are PR and comms decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to say they're politically unpopular because, to be honest, mm-hmm. Most of the, I mean, you use the term liberal democratic. Mm. I don't think the average tech executive is liberal. Let me, let me, I think they're probably more libertarian I'm saying, than anything. I'm saying liberal in the broader, from the, the 18th century, right. uh, from, yeah, from the okay. French Revolution yeah. to today. Okay. I'm not yeah. saying, I'm saying democratic. So let's, let's, right. let's, let's, con- small d. Yeah. Let's say Western. Okay. Okay. So sure. the Western ideal of democracy, free markets, those sorts of things. Yeah. No, they're not making a moral stand. Mm. I don't think that they are. Because at this point, who could still be doing business there? It, it, and I hate to use this term, 
people talk about canceling, is Russia getting canceled? This is the definition of canceling. This is the definition of canceling. Because no one wants to be the last person. If Coke uh, stops doing business in Russia tomorrow, Pepsi's going to have to. That's what canceling is. Is like, we can't be the last people there. You're only going to be able to get Tab and RC Cola over there. <laughs> no, but it is, I, I, I think it's a lot of you know, window dressing and, you know, for the most part, most of these companies are absolutely willing to hold their nose and do business in a place if it makes them money and it makes their shareholder money in a way that does not get egg on their face. Now, I think what has changed Mm. is the speed at which egg can get on your face and the speed at which what's really going on in places Right, everything from, you know, real sweatshops to digital sweatshops and you know moderation pl- pl- uh, places. Right, the the speed in which that can bubble up and go viral and all has really really shifted the the game because you know the major economic players in our country have been doing business overseas in ways that most people would probably not be comfortable with for years and years and years. That is, that, that's not new. I think my original question is... is Can you the, no longer get away with that, maybe? Yeah. Is the tech industry ready for a situation where uh, you have to create... If, if you create a TikTok tomorrow, a new TikTok, that um, it has to be different... Um, if you if if you are Apple, you can't assume that you can just always go to wherever the cheapest labor is because there will be blocks coming right. where like back in the day you could sell to half the world but you couldn't sell to this half of the world. Um, we had to open a back door for somebody. The dream of the tech industry, as I to a certain degree for the last 25 years is we will serve all of humanity and we're going to bring them all online and we're going to do all this stuff regardless of what government you're under now okay what's the nuance that's got to come in and and are people prepared for that if if apple can never go back to russia um if 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 you will be back in russia at some point eventually well let's hope let's hope because that will mean that um putin will be gone it's uh, uh, Chris. I, Chris I'm says sure. yes. Oh, go. All right. I'm sorry. I, I I inserted something. Go ahead. I think the extent to which governments impact the economy is something that people didn't may not have been prepared for. In the sense that, like, yeah, your market's free-ish, except that you know. Everything from small-time grease payments to you have to agree for this approval to you have competitors in some of these local countries that are so tied in to the local politics as to be an arm of the government in some yeah. way, right? And and so all of that, it's it's not just like, you know, here we have pretty good separation, right? Where you're sort of like, okay, it's, it's pretty clear what the law set is. Uh, we got a team of lawyers here. They can craft us a, a, a license to do business and a, and a way of doing business that we're pretty sure we're not going to get interfered with in the in the government. And you know, we just assumed that 
because it's all online, it's all ones and zeros or whatever that like nobody can get in our way of doing business over here. And when like, when the government can shut down parts of the internet, right? like you're not, you are dependent on other governments for permission to deliver your services. I mean, one question I would have, which I don't know the answer is, if you're in one of these places where the government regularly blocks stuff and you're aware that you're not getting the whole story, is like what percentage of Russian internet users do you think actively use a VPN? Uh, I would a, a better question would be in Iran where they have been blocked for multiple years for half a decade at this point. Um, yeah, Maybe half no. Yeah, I mean at least I mean I, I have no idea. Like it's sort of very it easy for us in the after though, right? Because you have to. I was thinking about this. Uh, if if for example you only had a voice assistant to watch television, right? You have to first have an imagination or at least some exposure to what is even possible to be out there to ask for. And so you might have a VPN, but if the only thing that you're really looking to get is Netflix, right. then you're not actually searching for specific news or new stories because you, the seed of those ideas That's those fair. stories were never planted. So you wouldn't even know to ask the question. Right. And given the fact that everybody's social network experience is sort of a reflection of their own, yeah, their you own know, access it's, it's to and like right. whatever they're originally exposed to. I mean, like, think about like the thing that and it, like kind of where maybe we could take this a little bit, Brian, um, is to reflect a bit on, and I think what you're getting at implicitly is a sense for where some of us in the tech world sort of started from some of those first principles or ideas and the fact that, you know, for, for a very long time, you know, the internet technology, was a space that was a greenfield because so few people understood it. You know, we were able to go out there and create brand new things, sort of out of you know whole cloth, because the rest of the world or much of the rest of the world was preoccupied with you know conventional marketplaces and what was happening. And so, you know, whether you want to go all the way back to the well or other early online communities, there was a sense you know of, of possibility of pioneerism of you know, sort of this Western expanse, just like, you know, that, that was that was the, uh, the cyberspace back then, that you could expand into and bring a whole, well, at least what we thought at the time, was a new set of values, uh, a new set of uh, inclusivity or opportunity of uh, homesteading. And what seems to have happened over the last 20 years, you know, Charlie, we were talking about how you and I first met back in 2006 or seven. Um, you know, at Citizen Space, which was the first uh, co-working space in, uh, in, in San Francisco and the world, um, you know, we thought of doing things differently. We put our entire business operation online. We let everyone see how much money we were losing to run that business, <laughs> in the hope that it would inspire other people to build their own co-working spaces. And then that's that, where we work, work, work out their money losing business model from. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Oh, this well, is the way to do they, it. They, they took it to a logical extreme. You know, they really got it good. You know, whereas like we, you know, we got out at the right time, maybe. Um, but but nonetheless, like there was a certain idealism which I think is what Brian is talking about, um, that infused a lot of our decisions. I think you bring up a, a perspective that I think tech always has and always gets proven wrong on, in that hmm. the, the, um, there's this idea of like, Tech will be the great equalizer. Tech will be the great democratizer. I mean, you, you use the analogy and you said this is like pioneering and sure. going west, right? Well, I mean, actually, when you take that analogy, right, when we were sort of pioneering, like 
that wasn't exactly empty land. Well, okay, okay. So, so actually, this is a very like this is exactly where I wanted to go because the point is, you were a weirdo coming out to the Bay Area back right. then because you were from New York, right? And New York is very close to Europe. In mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, the Mayflower came over there first and it took quite a, you know, a couple hundred years perhaps <laughs> for those folks to then make their way out to, you know, California mm-hmm. and to, you know, blow up some shit in the meanwhile. But like, the, I guess the point is California and the Bay Area, Silicon Valley has kind of offered this, this hope or this promise, this source of optimism. Right. Because it wasn't so close to prior establishments that went back for thousands of years in terms of human culture. And so... You know, being on the edge of where humanity is going, perhaps, because things haven't really been established yet in the same pattern as what came before, affords us that sense of optimism. And so what I'm hearing from you and your cynicism and skepticism mm-hmm. is a very East Coast. I grew up on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I'm from New Hampshire. Like, is a kind of East Coast mentality about, well, look, guys, like, this is all going to go to shit anyways. So, like, you know, let's just, like, make some money and get out while we can or something along those lines, as opposed to coming from a generative place where it's like actually maybe this this time can be different and so the 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 holding on to you know what is that a naive optimism is i think what allows us to do the things we do i think it's it's actually funny coming from you and i'd love to hear your perspective on this Mm -hmm. as a vc like you have to maintain that kind of optimism and hope about things being built and created that can be you know useful important and good i don't know if i agree with that actually please um because i i think it's the optimism I mean, it, to some extent, it's there's a c- certain optimism about um, a small team, perhaps, mm-hmm. to say, you know, it is possible that these three people around a kitchen table mm-hmm. can build a company that one day employs 10,000 people, Sure. right? Is that optimistic by its nature i i don't know i've i've certainly never thought why about would it they that do way. it like why like what else would motivate them I, I mean i suppose there's just a profit interest and you know having things but like you know i mean if you listen to any working in a big company sucks and they're okay. in love with the problem and they can't stop thinking about it mm. and they mm. there's no way they they're they don't even understand hmm. the idea of not doing it so do you think that they can be pessimistic and believe that maybe they won't won't succeed and still pursue it with the same level oh, of... Oh, yes. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, and, and it's not about... Just like because a, it's interesting to work on. Uh, and it's not about a pessimism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I had a conversation with another VC. Mm-hmm. And uh, this person was sort of feeling the stress of the job, being responsible for other people's money and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he was feeling it and 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 he said you know you've always come off as kind of level-headed or whatever like how do you bear the responsibility and all of that sort of stuff and i said well first of all i think that the fact that i don't stress about it comes from the fact that i admit i might not be good at this Hmm. the possibility Hmm. exists Hmm. that i am not a good Hmm. vc See, so, uh, what I'm hearing you say... That's real. It, there's it's a realism. chance. Yeah. So what we're talking about is realism. It's realism. Right. Yeah. I don't think of realism as pessimism. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, right. And so, you know, when I look at the, you know, somebody building some, yeah, you know, yeah. social network that connect the world, yeah. right? I, I think it's, you know, optimism is like, this will be great. We'll just get everybody connected and all will be good. Right? And to me, pessimism is like, what a stupid idea. That'll never happen, right? Hmm. And to me, realism is like, connecting the world is challenging. And by the way, there's a whole 
shitload of, 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 you know, stumbling blocks that you should have real answers to, right? Um, what do you do if somebody writes, you know, suck on every Wikipedia page? Mm -hmm. Like, there's just, because somebody's going to do that, mm -hmm. right? And you just have to sort of build in those kind of mechanisms. And what I see from mm -hmm. a lot of these platforms is that they were largely built without thinking about what it would be like if somebody started I, abusing other people I, on their platform. Part of the problem, though, is is the 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 ignorance and the privilege of not having to think about those things because right. those things hadn't been experienced by the people by who the, were building right, these things. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Right? For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, 100%. I, and, and maybe again, this, you know, trying to you know bring this back around both to to Brian's point and also to to consider that this is the first. Well, actually, I should be very clear. This is not the first time where there's been a war mm. or a warlike context that's happened in the era of social media. You know, whether you want to think about the Arab Spring or you want to think about what happened in Syria, or you want to think about what happened like in Africa, like there's wars going on all the time. Right. This seems to be the first time. Some of whom we care about, some of whom we don't. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And for any number of reasons, we care about this one particularly, especially as it re re relates to the number of context or apparent connections between what goes on in Russia and the rest of the world mm -hmm. as connected to the, through the financial market, through yeah. oil, through resources that we need for you know our comfortable lifestyles i suppose and it is shocking to me and alarming to me going back to your point about you know maybe the intersection of you know government and government control over how or if some of these companies are able to operate in those places mm -hmm. that there can just be a wholesale sort of removal and isolation of this fairly large country uh, from the rest of the world, from the uh, the SWIFT banking system, mm -hmm. and from the rest. So to, to see that and to observe that does feel like we have crossed a... God, what is the, the name of the thing? Threshold? Uh, uh, Rubicon. Thank you. Okay. A Rubicon, where, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, uh, is that anybody who... Okay, sorry, one and a half things. Uh, that starts <laughs> the next TikTok or begins their next company now has seen this possibility and may need to have people employed who are able to adapt and deal with this type of circumstance. And the thing that I was going to say before, when I get this whole thing going, was if I were to start a Twitter account today, the influences or the accounts that I would follow are quite different than the ones that any of us here mm. having this conversation would be exposed to. And so we have the privilege of growing up with these services mm -hmm. and connecting to a wide plurality of different views and perspectives. And it's not even, you know, as diverse as it could be, but nonetheless, more so than someone who starts today and attempts to try to understand what's, what's going on in the world from anyone beyond their echo chamber. Well, and now the systems not. are just reinforcing those echo chambers even more so. And now they're pushed to connect to brands and right. influencers exactly. right. and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, yeah, when we started, it was, I was like probably just probably five hundred or thousand people in yep. follow wise before I ever followed anything brand, that was like no. a brand or a company. It was like lame. Or... Why do you want advertising on these things? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can I uh, can I bring it to crypto specifically? Yeah. Sure. Uh, how... Speaking of unbridled optimism or pessimism <laughs> or realism or naivete, <laughs> all of the above. How do you feel about the idea? Now, of course, if you're a Coinbase, if you're a business that exists in um, a regulated world, mm -hmm. you have to uh, kowtow to the regulations. That's what you do, otherwise you go to jail. Mm -hmm. Especially the financial markets. Now, 
When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Uh, uh, there's a two-part here, and you know the second part, Chris, which is, this is, uh, isn't this the perfect use case for crypto? So what's going on with that? But number one, um, how do you feel morally about the idea that crypto folks are like, okay, you can ban certain accounts because your uh, Coinbase or your what, it, it, the NFTs you can what, but but morally the idea that this is crypto writ large, which is you can't ban my account even if I'm a bad actor. And this is coming to the fore right now. How do you feel about that coming to the fore? Are well, you still are you still on board with the dream of crypto? I guess I would I would clarify some things. You know, like if I have fiat US, USD, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I suppose yes, you could uh, maybe ban a set of serial numbers. You know, for the dollars that I've you know, laundered or something. But for the most part, if I have, you know, fiat currency, I can use that as I, as I like. So the property that allows crypto to be used in a similar way, like is no different than that. So if you want to ban the use of crypto for those purposes, then you need to ban 
money and money as a, is a concept and so concepts are very hard to ban yeah but fiat accounts can be frozen i was accounts yes but but i'm i'm, I'm making, he's talking about cash like literally. Yeah, so, so actually and i want to i want to actually circle back to something else you said right where you're talking about custodial accounts mm-hmm. like coinbase that are holding on behalf of their users their the, the, those resources and that crypto just like you know uh iranian nft owners who use OpenSea because of sanctions accounts uh, that have NFTs on OpenSea have been deleted. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly those NFTs and that crypto is gone, right? Same way, you know, if, if you had a bank account or something and, you know, it was found to be connected to the Iranian government or, or whatever, or sanctions touched it, then those assets could either be um, uh, obtained or confiscated or, or what have you. So the, the similar properties are still there. Um, I think that this, this point that you make about, you know, censorship resistant money, i.e. crypto, might be better to evaluate at a smaller individualized level as opposed to what happens when crypto interacts with the conventional banking system. And so if I have my you know, Tether wallet or my hardware wallet and I've got my crypto on there and the war goes on for six months and then you know, there's a ceasefire or something and now we want to rebuild, if I've stored and kept that crypto and I come back into the marketplace, that, mar- that money was never confiscated, and it was uh, separate from the value, the devaluing of it's, the ruble. It's sovereignty. It's, it's your right. control of your So it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's my mattress full of you know, dollar bills that is now much smaller and portable, and I can still interact with the banking system someplace else as long as I stay outside of the conventional financial marketplace. Now, maybe that's not realistic and not plausible, but for those people who want that level of control, this technology does enable that. And so I would say that the jury is out in terms of how this is actually going to play out longer term. Although I'd argue that in most war-torn places, you could also probably show up with a fistful of dollars and Absolutely. get a ride out of the country or a private plane. Or all. I'm, I'm not so sure it's that sure. different. Uh, it may not be, but I do think that there's... I guess maybe this is the question. You know, like... It seems like if I were, you know, stuck in the Ukraine or Russia right now, I would be careful about, you know, how many people can actually accept my crypto. Can I ask that question? Because this is what the promise of crypto was. Satoshi, 2009, if your country gets cut off from the blockchain, Mm -hmm. from the entire (laughs) world's banking system, you can still leave the country with a, 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 a thumb drive. Right. And you can... So... I don't listen. Jury's still out. We've seen that crypto usage in mm-hmm. Russia has gone down percentage-wise, based on again these are marketplaces that yep. would. So we don't know what other marketplaces, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, what happens if this is the actual definitional reason for crypto to get your wealth out of a country that the 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 currency is going to toilet paper? But you can't. What? Then, then what? Then, then the, and by the way, crypto can still be something else, but the original dream of crypto, would that mean it's dead? Well, when you're talking about crypto, though, it's hard to pull apart the discussion of crypto from the companies, the wallets, the, the infrastructure around it. If you're just talking about, like, you know, somebody in a thumb drive, right? <laughs> yeah, you can always walk around with your th- thumb drive, right? Part of the issue is the biggest supporters of it, 
both functionally, championing-wise, and all that sort of stuff, want to play both sides, mm-hmm. right? Coinbase wanted the IPO on a traditional mm-hmm. stock market and all this sort of stuff, right? You, you talk about, like, um, I mean, it's funny because I just saw, um, maybe it wasn't as recently as I'm thinking about it, um, like the Series B for LivePeer. And I was like, wait, Series B? Like, I thought that the original construction of that company was ICO and an organization. Wait, can, you, can you explain what that what, what that is? Oh, so uh, LivePeer is a um, uh, video transcoding network. Okay. Uh, is so it like rather than going or something, or? Uh, well, rather than going like to Adobe servers yep. to split your video feed into yep. you know mobile and 4K and all of this sort of stuff, there was some distributed aspect to it. Uh, it's a New York based company. Um, it's run by this guy uh, Doug, who's in Brooklyn and runs and I run into him at different races and stuff like that. Nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I wound up, and also Mets fan. That's actually how I oh. first. Uh, we, <laughs> we found him on hashtag, thank you very much, Chris, uh, hashtag Mets Twitter. Mm. Um, hmm. But anyway, um, I said, hey, I was surprised to see a conventional funding round into like a corporate structure. And um, his response was some version of and I'm maybe misquoting, so I'm I'm not the expert on this, but that you know enterprise customers wanted some you know tangible corporate entity in terms of service and all this sort of stuff, right? So the bigger point is until you have whole systems yep. from top to bottom, full stack, logically operating, integrated. right, yeah. completely integrated, yeah. right. You are going to have to yep. play with the rules the of the most conventional, mm-hmm. lowest common denominator. Basically, the CIO, the CTO is going to ask for those. So let me right. let, let right. me let me give you a, a devil's a devil's advocate argument here, which is: if I'm a crypto maximalist, I want that to happen. I, I, I and which part? Okay. If I always use the example of my mom, if my mom, I never thought she'd use Facebook or an iPhone or whatever. If you, you were wrong on both counts. I was wrong on both counts. Mm-hmm. If you want crypto to take over the world, it's not going, this is my opinion, mm-hmm. to take over the world in the maximalist libertarian sense of it's just fucking anarchy and if your stuff gets stolen, mm-hmm. um, you can't get it back. It's got to get plugged into everything else. Now, it can get plugged in in a different way. I'm not saying that you have to conform, you have mm-hmm. to sell out, you don't have to do that. but. If I were a crypto maximalist, I would want some way, and, and while we plug into the systems, we can change them. Wait, I'm sorry, you didn't finish what you were saying. You would want... What? I would want crypto to plug into ah. systems... Existing systems. To, to plug into or to replace? Both. Hmm. Slowly. Yeah. S- plug in and slowly replace. Right, so that the things that are better about crypto can replace the things in the legacy systems that we don't like. What I don't like about crypto maximalism is that it is just burn it all down. But this is part of the both naivete and maybe it's a kind of imperialist uh, optimism that wants to replace the previous system because it's too hard to understand the logic of the previous system as a newcomer. 
So you look backwards in time. And you're like, how the hell right. did this shit get this way? I just realized what I described was <laughs> okay. um, um, communism versus social democracy <laughs> as it exists in Europe. <laughs> like, uh, you know, as opposed to burn down the, the government, it's mm -hmm. um, we're going to get into the government through democratic means and then right. put socialism yeah, in place. Okay. Sorry. No, but I, I think I, it's... You it's, make a really good point, though. It's It's... The idea that to disrupt, you have to fully understand why the other system, why it's set up that way. It's a big reason why I see startups fail. I mean, I, yeah. I, I remember yeah. this one startup that pitched yep. me that was disrupting um, Blackboard in the classroom. Mm -hmm. and, and Blackboard is the worst software any, anybody's ever made. Ho hopefully they're not sponsoring the podcast. <laughs> I don't think they are. I haven't heard them. But... Um, and teachers hate it, students hate it, whatever. And but it's very popular. But, well, it's everywhere, right? right. It is yeah. powering more and more aspects of the university, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. And mm -hmm. this person said, we're going to make this much better classroom software. And I was like, I don't doubt that you can make a better classroom software. But you have to do that while understanding why it is like that. Have you ever talked to the IT person who works mm -hmm. in a university? Mm -hmm. Because they spend most of their day resetting the accounts of tenured professors who forgot their password and they clock out at five and, and all of that sort of stuff. The last thing, because the, the entrepreneur had made this comment to me, once all the professors start using it, they oh. will be forced to yeah. rip out their blackboard. And I was like, no, it's no, not, they're those, not. Those contingencies they don't, don't work that way. They, no, because that, that, you know, the dean is going to come to them and they're going to say, well, everybody seems to be using this. What do you think? And they're going to kick the tires on. They're going to, well, you know, it's full of security holes. And they're like, oh, oh, well, security holes. That's, can't deal with that. Okay, we're going to stick a blackboard and we know and love and all of that sort of stuff, right? And so you really need to understand the ins and outs of the systems. Like, I think there are huge opportunities for something crypto-like and distributed and all of this sort of stuff in our, our legal system and case system and, and all of this sort of stuff, right? But like, I was just involved in, in a settlement uh, uh, in a real estate transaction separate from what I do. Um, and the, the, the point of failure of bringing technology into this was that, oh, thankfully you can, as of June 30th, can't notarize a document online in New York. It's not legal. It's not legal. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we're going to have ownership represented by coins and whatever. <laughs> People are still asking me for wet ink it's, signatures. It's the, it's the underpants gnomes thing. It's <laughs> step A and then step yes. C, profit. But try, yeah. try and open up a bank account without wet ink. Right? Why? Now, by the way, we can get there, and that's why I like what the energy around crypto is mm -hmm. is like that's the energy of changing that bullshit yeah but most of, but most of the people that i see mm. in those systems can't explain to you why anybody asks for wedding or can't just even in a cynical way say well mm. somebody asked for wedding because the person above them was asked for wedding mm. and, and mm. all this other stuff and here's who i need to lobby and i need to talk to this person and it's this part of the mm -hmm. the new york state you know commercial code and and uh here's the strings i need to pull go to fine and and and, mm -hmm. and listen let's uh transition into talking about you um when you talk to people that say putting it on the blockchain is better can they explain that 
um, they can explain anecdotes and stories, what a world may be like if, which usually starts with imagine if imagine imagine if everyone adopted this imagine uh, a world well okay well why is the first person why is the second person mm -hmm. you know whatever mm -hmm. then you start to bring up the realism i was gonna say this is this sounds like realism go with me my new imagine york realism <laughs> yes. right but but explain to me you know uh how does x y and z how how do you overcome hurdle x y and z I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be old, stodgy, East Coast VC that can't see the bigger picture. But like, you know, and it's not trying to be a jerk. It's sort of like, you can't just shine me. You can't just, we're going to sprinkle magic dust on this. Right. Here's the problem. Sprinkle magic dust. And then it all works yeah, out. Yeah, you know, so but, but what this is bringing up again, you know, coming from now probably, you know, the, the Kool-Aid West Coast perspective, um, is that actually both of these perspectives are incredibly valuable and sure. useful. And you actually need them to be somewhat, you know, in comp competition. Because everything that you just described about your, you know, skepticism, asking the questions like, okay, yes, if all, all a set of class of people do this new behavior yes it will be great and it will enable these things however convince me that the first person and the, the second person are mm -hmm. going to do it. it's like well i'm not really sure but just imagine like you know the law and, and so like the optimist does need to be there to have that sort of vision about how things possibly could happen but then you need that realism that steps through things which goes back to your point about like when i was saying well don't don't these you know founders or startupers like need to be optimistic about their vision of the future and you said well i don't know if that's really true i think your point actually is that they need to be in love with the problem because everything that you just said is actually enumerating the different steps of the problem that need to be addressed in order to actually to have a solution sure as opposed to a you burn it all down start over and i just want to have all the same problems that everyone else before me had and end up in the exact same place or fail which is what happens to most startups because they don't have respect for those who came before they have a certain level of hubris that actually denies them the wisdom of having compassion or empathy or just understanding for everyone else who also tried to solve a similar problem, but perhaps had a different set of users or a different context or in a different time period or whatever. So to, to bring this back momentarily to the crypto thing, what I'm very curious to see is whether or not this will actually be a set of good adverse scenarios for crypto that they need to actually now design for and against. Because I think that the previous purpose, purpose that you were talking about, the reason why you know crypto is there and you know does this undermine the whole case, yeah. you know, was really against uh, deflationary contexts where governments would print, you know, millions of you know pesos or dollars or whatever it was, and cause those people who had been holding you know those currencies to basically go to zero. And so by using crypto and math, they could say, well, actually, we're going to have a very you know regimented form of inflation that no person who is either emotional or you know being uh, you know attacked or whatever it is you know by people in the streets can't actually change or fuck with mon monetary policy the way that it's happened before. So this is the first time that crypto is really going through or being used in a war in this way. So it actually... In the way that, in theory, we were was supposed sold on. to. Yeah. Or at least one of the use cases. Mm -hmm. So some coins may persist and actually get better and stronger, and they will design for those use cases. Yeah, it's true. We're, we're, we're a weekend, so it yeah, shouldn't be... Yeah. And, and by the way, what I thought when I was thinking about this earlier today is like, oh, 
Is it because crypto or Bitcoin hasn't gone to $100,000? Is that why I don't think it's working? I don't know that it's not working yet. Right. In terms of getting your money out of Russia. I mean, if I have Bitcoin and not rubles, right. you know, I'm probably, you know. I don't know that it's not working in that use case yet. Um, can you buy javelins with crypto? I bet you can. I mean, how do, like, in theory, I'm sure the Germans will sell them to you. If you... I, I'm curious about how all <laughs> the true. crypto money that winds up going to yeah. Ukraine mm. and other places. Yeah. Right. Like, what are the off ramps? Well, well yeah. 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 <laughs> like, yeah. Do they show yeah. Do they, like suitcases of like you know hardware ledgers, like right. hardware wallets? But I mean, okay, but that is actually I know the use case. It's not suitcases of cash. It <laughs> is suitcase of bits. The, it's some the, little cat thumb drive. Cat thumb drive. <laughs> uh, um, I want to I want to talk about you, Charlie, and Brooklyn Bridge uh, Ventures and um, New York City. Uh, and we can end up with some other stuff too, but, um, um, do you invest heavily in, in crypto and web three? What's your, what's your thesis on that for investing? I'm a generalist. And so I don't have, um, well, I have no shortage of opinions from an investment standpoint. I am looking to hear the opinions of the people that pitch me, right? So I am not for or against whole categories of things. Because you name the category, and there are really good ideas in the category, and really awful ideas in the category, unworkable ideas. Ideas that would be good if done by different people, right? So I'm open to hearing all sorts of Web3 and crypto ideas. But that means is, and anyone who's pitched me will attest to this, is I'm going to ask some real questions, right? Um, and, th and that doesn't matter the category. I mean, for example, and it's just on my mind because mm. I just came from home and I, I have a, um, um, a small little baby at home. And we're finally using uh, one of my portfolio companies, um, <laughs> Assembly Diapers, reusable mm. diapers. Mm. And it was a company that had uh, pitched me and uh, millennial parents care about the uh, environment and all this sort of stuff. First question in the meeting, I said to the founder, tell me about the poop in the washing machine. That, that's because like, that's the thing. <laughs> that would be my that question. Is right. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing that a customer is not to give me your business plan or whatever. Right. Tell me about the poop in the washing machine. Right. It's like, I'm sure this is a great product if it works. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, so, and, and the founder's answer was great. And she said, do you have little kids in the building? And I said, yes. She said, there's already poop in the washing machine. <laughs> said, do you have anybody older in the building? She said, yes, there's already poop in the washing machine. What is the grossest thing mm. you put in the washing machine? I said, my ice hockey stuff. Mm. And she goes, that's pretty gross, right? She's like, yeah. It gets clean, right? I said, yeah, it does get clean. Mm. And so, yeah, she's like, that's how washing machine works. That's a great answer to that story, <laughs> This right? is a total aside, but <laughs> I know for sure that my parents got through me and my brother without... Uh, with, without with, throwing them out? Right. No no disposable diapers. It was yeah. all sure. washable diapers. Yeah. We, we're late 70s kids, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's wow. not just millenniums. Or yeah. millennials. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. A company pitched me last week, and they want to do something with NFTs... I won't go mm -hmm. too far into it because I don't want to mm -hmm. blow up the spot. And I was like, okay, but if NFTs don't happen in two years, three years, can we still do it? Right. 
like do we have to build it around this do you find yourself doing that where mm. someone that pitches you in a web3 way mm. and you're like great this is a good idea and you're doing it in a web3 way but what if it wasn't well so mm. this is the difference mm. between taking each company and evaluating it individually mm. versus taking a portfolio of risk mm. and, and i'm actually more of a portfolio uh, thinker. I mean, my financial background is I started out at the General Motors Pension Fund. VCs used to pitch me. That's how I met the guys at Union Square Ventures. Brad and Fred came in with their pitch for the Union Square Ventures Fund. Um, to which the first time I heard it before I even met them was startups in New York. That seems like a terrifically stupid idea. Um, <laughs> what year was that? 2004. Yeah, there you go. Right. At the and, time, it kind of was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, right. they'd already made their money a little bit, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, so in, in, in that kind of case, I think there's totally room to say, hey, you know, I should have a bet in this space that you know, should this stuff take off, you know, it, it might be worth having a play there. Now, I, I don't necessarily go looking for that kind of stuff, but I would be lying if I said that there haven't been certain deals here and there where it's like, you know what, I really like this team and I feel like I should have something in the space. So like, that's what kind of tipped me. Um, but I do like scenarios where there's a good answer to that. So for example, like I'm invested in a company called Infinite Objects and Infinite Objects is a way to print video. That's the way we think about it, right? And it started out as like art and DIY. It's these frames where you permanently flash a single video onto it. So it's not a, you know, electronic frame. The thing you're giving is the video itself, right? It's like somebody finds some long lost image of your parents' wedding. They give you the thing or grandparents or whatever. And you're not like, Oh, this is a nice frame. It's the photo and it's the whole thing. That's the gift, right? Um, people started using it to upload their NFTs. I was going to say, they started pre-NFTs. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. They started pre-crypto. And yeah. so people started putting their NFTs in there, which creates a whole image. Like, do you own the file? And what if you sold the NFT <laughs> and the you questions. still have the image and all this sort of stuff? Um, we actually uh, have done some uh, a business deal with uh dapper and, and their you know um small investor in us and and we're looking for more and more ways to work together but the thing i like about that company and i said it to the founders the other day is like the price of crypto and the price of nfts could crash and we could still be valuable because i actually do believe in the collectibles market mm. i think the concept of something like a Top Shot mm. is really cool. And it generated so much mm. young fan engagement at all ages, right? Whether like, it's NFTs or not, it's... Right, right. right. And, and, and mm. look, speculators ruin mm -hmm. a lot of that sort of stuff, much in the same way they did with baseball cards when I was little. And if you look at the market for baseball cards or whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's kind of funny, actually. I my, boxes of useless, yes. worthless my, baseball My Frank cards. Thomas rookie card isn't yeah. as much as I thought it would be. Right. Yeah. Um, it's because we all have one of them. We all have a Frank Thomas rookie <laughs> exactly. card. Exactly. That's the 1990 extended set, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the, the Fleer? Fleer. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So, uh, man, I, you know, uh, I probably somewhere in my parents' old house is still getting a Beckett subscription. Oh. <laughs> um, wow. We used to go in the seventh grade and we would sit there when Beckett would come out and we'd sit there in seventh grade and just look up all your cards. Yeah. That was open sea at the day, yeah. you know? Dude, yeah. that Phil Plantier rookie never take off. Never took off. Um, but, you know, but that's a scenario whereby I could have a bet where that company wins. And the most expensive stuff sold on their platform are NFTs that are minted in limited edition because of some, your team wins the World Series or whatever, and they're like 200 bucks. And that's the cost of it. And it, you know, it might go up in value or whatever, but like, you don't care because you have this awesome thing that was one of only a thousand made and you're a big fan of whatever team and you have it and it exists in your real world and you love it and it you're not investing because you're expecting it to get rich um i i think that's fine i think that's great and i think um companies should realize that that's a that's a possibility for this stuff and that's uh an important consideration what if you know, uh, what if this all doesn't go to the moon? What does a post-crash right. scenario mm-hmm. look like? Mooning is different than sustainable business. Right. <laughs> That's a, a weird thing to say. Um, quick aside, uh, the reason I got a, a baseball card is because I bought a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, and when I took it home, I realized it wasn't in mint condition. There's a little oh. tip. <laughs> so I spent, what was it, $200 at the time? I still haven't opened but... my 89 upper deck box. Yeah, there you go, 89 upper deck. Mm-hmm. Um, we're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. One 1Password One combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon, because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride, onepasswordcom slash ride. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a 
limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. So, Charlie, you're a legend here in the New York City <laughs> startup I'm a legend in my house. <laughs> you're, oh, because, look, um, from uh, 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 Brad and uh, uh, you, like, you were at first round, you were, um, like... Do you want to give the quick two minutes? Yeah, do it. Okay. So, uh, born and raised in Brooklyn... Uh, Union Square and first round. I can never remember Union Square. That's on there. That's on them. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and yeah, Wall Street loomed large. And that's where smart people, you know, it's funny. I grew up in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. At Mm -hmm. the time, it was the largest Italian neighborhood in the five boroughs. And so my version of Wall Street and, and what successful Wall Street types look like was kind of something out of Wolf of Wall Street. You know, mm-hmm. it was just mm-hmm. these like Suits. bros that would hop on the train and 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 sell stocks and you know whatever. And uh, but that's where smart hustling people went to go make money. Um, and my my godfather had given me a tiny little sliver of IBM stock when I was born. Mm-hmm. So for, as a little kid, I knew the stock market existed. IBM, they would always mention it because it was a big company at the time, right? And so. I'd, I knew up was better, down was worse, <laughs> and um, so I, I wound up going into finance, and I wound up working at the General Motors Pension Fund uh, through a high school internship of all uh, things. Uh, again, I got to ask what year, if, you, if you're willing to say, or... Yeah, so uh, 1997. There you go. Okay. Um, and so I worked all four years throughout college, because I went to Fordham, and um, the GM Pension Fund was... On 59th and 5th, what, where the Apple store is now, but there used to be a hula hands there on the corner, um, their little garden patio. And um, when I graduated in 2001, the one group where there happened to be an opening was the venture capital and private equity group. And so not knowing really anything about how either of those two things worked, but being a finance student during the late 90s who definitely bought internet stocks and Mm. felt really smart when they went up and felt really (laughs) stupid when they went down Uh, like i was into tech um small aside uh i invited kara swisher to come talk Mm. at my college back in i'm gonna say like 98 or 99 or something like that um because i was a big fan of her boomtown column Mm. and she showed up there was a an embarrassingly small audience because this is pre-Facebook, right? Yeah. So it was actually hard. I was like yeah. fucking flyering <laughs> the campus, right? And it was like a room for like two hundred people, and they were like, I, "This this tech journalist that, that I read every day, and everyone is like, no, we don't read.'" I was about so tech excited. Yeah. I thought I was going to pack the room, right? <laughs> there had to be like, if there were fifteen people in the room, it was oh. a lot. I felt so stupid. She was so cool about it. She did her thing, um, and you know the whole walk back to the Metro North stop at Fordham. I was like super embarrassed, and she's like, "No, it's fine. It's, it, I don't care. You know, it's it great to meet you and whatever." Um, but uh, yeah, so anyway, go to GM. Wound up in the venture capital group. 
VCs would pitch me. And I spent a lot of time in the four years I was at GM to be, to, out, to be specific, pitching you for money, for, right? Because no one ever thinks about the money that goes into VC funds. They have to raise the capital that they from deploy. From institutions, exactly. from LPs, and, right. and all of this sort of stuff, right? And what was, I mean, when, when you say VCs were pitching you, do you mean that these, I guess. Uh, Fred Wilson is pitching him, apparently? Yeah, like, well, Ex- no, Excel I know, but like, came in. Okay, I guess, like, I'm trying to understand, like, who the VCs were back then, what the different areas they were investing in, right. and whether, or, like, what, what proportion of them might have been tech VCs. Yeah, so. And what was their pitch? Right. So, short history of VC, VC used to be more than just yeah. tech, right? If you look in the 80s, it exactly. was like consumer brands like and VCs stuff like new. that. VCs right, has been right. around for a long time. Right. Yeah. So, actually, one of my uh, uh, favorite conversations, oh, man, I'm like totally blanking on his name now, which I, is awful. But um, this investor, um, is it Jerry Gallagher? That might be his name. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, was Jerry Kalana. No, 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 no. no, no. I don't know who Jerry is. No. <laughs> I was going to say. No, this, uh, <laughs> maybe it'll come to me. But he was an investor at Oak, and he was a retail VC, hmm. like literally sporting goods stores oh, and like, like, you, you know, like, like Galen sporting goods yeah. and um, uh, a few others. And, um, and I was doing this project on like consumer investing and like VC and private equity and all that sort of stuff. And, and he had made a whole bunch of money investing in, hmm. yeah. you know, these startup retailers, right? What basically happened is when the late 90s came, if you were not investing in dot-coms, you underperformed mm-hmm. yep. relative to everybody else, right? Of so either you retired because you were like, this is bullshit, I mm-hmm. can't deal with this, mm-hmm. or like crypto. you hopped on. Mm-hmm. It, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. And that is happening. There are definitely people who are exiting stage left because yeah. they're like, this crypto I do not have the time right. to get to know this. I can't, this I can't compete with some college kid yeah. who's not going to any classes exactly. and just... You yeah. know, raising virtual horses the yeah. whole day or right. whatever, yeah. right? And so, um, the uh, uh, so yeah, everybody went to tech. Um, and then when the crash came, it was actually really interesting because a lot of those people that had made a bunch of money in the late 90s didn't continue. Hmm. And so, what you wound up with was really interesting situations like hmm. in 2004, Excel comes back to market with their new fund. Now, they're 94, 95 vintage year fund was like a 24x returning fund, mm. which like in the fund world, it just like shouldn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. That's 24x on the whole portfolio. Have you been reading that new book from um, What's His Face? Um, I interviewed him for the Internet History Podcast. Anyway, there's a new history of VC. Sorry. Is it a Josh Lerner book? Or? No, it's it's called um, The Power Law. I can't remember the guy's name, but... It, oh, this this is the, the guy that the was British being, guy. being obnoxious to... Uh, I'm sure he's obnoxious. I yeah. don't know. I uh, can't speak to that. But anyway, sorry. Let, let, me, let me tell you one of the things that I took from that is, uh, and I meant to highlight it on the page, but like, so imagine that in 1999, Venture in the United States raised... 130 million billion dollars mm-hmm. and that was a record yeah and then in 2003 that year they raised nine billion. Oh yeah i'm not surprised wow right well because when you think about it like so vcs historically used to raise money every four years like clockwork hmm. right there were vc funds that raised two funds in 99 mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure like redpoint was one of the the funds that raised two two funds in 99 
Um, because if you deployed it in January, the speed, and people talk about mm -hmm. how fast things are moving now, mm -hmm. the speed in which how things were moving was even faster. A company could go from a business plan to an IPO. To IPO. In 18 months, nine months easily, towards the end. Easily, yeah. that yeah. was happening, right? So anyway, so what you wound up happening is these really interesting situations like Excel comes back to market in 2004 and blue chip fund historically, right? 90s, great success. Last two funds, kind of dogs, right? There was a 98 fund that kind of underperformed a 2000 fund that like didn't look great. Basically all new team. I mean, th mm. there were some people that were sort of carryovers, but it was unclear. They had already made their money, how much time, right? So you have folks like Teresa Renzetta, uh, uh, or, um, who were relatively new, right? But you were counting on, who'd maybe done a handful of deals. The deals looked interesting, but you, you just didn't know. And it becomes this like, it's sort of like the Yankees rooting for the pinstripes thing. like. Is it the fun? Is it the way the, the, the fun does business? Or is it, can we identify that mm. these people are actually smarter than other people, which I have found is a really mm. hard bet to swallow. And I don't know, with some funds, it does seem to be the fund, right? Sequoia's had persistent top quartile returns for 45 years, right? But like, you would have said that a Kleiner Mm. in the late 90s and right. that's not that's yeah. a sh you know not the same fund it was at the time um so anyway um so these vcs were mostly doing tech deals and um chips router software you know basic stuff and what struck me about the union square ventures guys when they mm. came in also in 2004 was they were like yeah all that shit's been plugged in. We mm. have all the chips and the routers we need, and you don't need your computer to be faster. But what happens when <laughs> we're all plugged in? They were onto the next, yeah, the next generation, right. not, not and the, uh, the next order. About what was going to be enabled. Yes, right. Exactly. What it was going to enable. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, like, hmm. if you're a portfolio manager, which is what we are. I don't know if these guys are right. It sounded really good, but I was 24 at the time, and, and unlike most current 24-year-olds, I was like, I'm not sure I know as much <laughs> as I, you know, know enough to make a really smart decision here. Um, but these guys are doing something definitively different, and we should be investing in a handful of funds that are doing something definitively different. Because if it's not the whole chips and routers thing, then then we're all gonna get crushed somewhere else right so we should go into that fund the problem was it was a hundred million dollar fund on paper gm was used to writing 40 million dollar checks that because we were putting two billion of venture to mm -hmm. work and so like that didn't work for us so i pounded the table for gm to make an investment i was the junior guy low guy on the totem pole they, they passed wow that first Union Square Ventures Fund's probably like 20-25x returning fund. Right. I mean, it's Zynga, Etsy, Indeed, Tumblr, mm. Twitter. See, that's the thing about Fred is that, like, so, you know, uh, wasn't it GeoCities was the big mm. one from the, the mm -hmm. 90s fund or whatever, but um, it was, you know, back in the day when we were reading TechCrunch and, and like, seeing, like, things pop up, like, it was... You mean when TechCrunch was just a blog? Right, 2004, mm -hmm. 2005. Yeah, right, Michael exactly. mm -hmm. uh, um, It was, 
he was one of the first people to see that there's the second order thing mm -hmm. of um, even though this is dead and, and especially here in New York City I say this all the time all the people that were here in the dot-com era because of the great jobs all those jobs went away because all of the sort of um, new media mm -hmm. divisions went away. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the idea that people like Fred saw that... Um, Fred and Brad. And Brad. Um, that that this is... No, no, no. The, the groundwork is laid. We're just waiting for the, the seeds to sprout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, that was the thing that they saw that I always thought was, was brilliant, is that we're just waiting. Um, it's not... It, 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 it wasn't brilliant to say that it's not dead, but it was brilliant to say that, no, it's not only not dead, it's the spring is almost here. Right. You know? No, and I, and I think, and it's, and it's funny because Fred is definitely historically the front guy, mm. right? The blog and all of that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But I'll say firsthand, like, um, I think Brad deserves way more credit than he gets for the success of that fund because he's like the theoretical thinker. Mm. He's like the, you know, Fred's always the the user, like, I'm blogging that I'm trying this new thing out and, you know, buy my virtual horse or whatever, he's right? He's one of the first users, yeah. Always the first user, yeah. right? And Brad's like, where's this going? Yeah. And, and what are these, what you know? They are hmm. as good a complimentary pair hmm. as a set of co-founders as I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, which is funny because people, so I also worked at First Round Capital, and so I, I got to work at, uh, for Josh Koppelman and Fred Wilson, two VCs, they're very visible and people know them, and, and, and it's funny because I think about like the advice that each would give to me, and um, Fred's advice was always some version of, you should get a partner, hmm. because he had such a great experience with his partner and it was integral to the success of that fund. Um, I was like, I'm not a partnering type. I'm a just terrible team player. <laughs> like I am much, much better at solo and Josh would never tell me to go get a partner. Um, Josh always starts out with like, okay, well, what are your goals? And then how do I? Much more like. And to be clear, we're talking about Josh. Josh Koppelman, Koppelman from at first, first round. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Much more like the C somebody who has been the CEO of a company full of disparate personalities and 150 people going in all sorts of different directions, and just knowing that like the thing that works for him as a CEO is not always going to be the thing that works for all of his employees, and and comes from it mm. from that perspective. And so that's uh, that was uh, helpful to me. Personally. Um, let me let me do first round. Just give me a what you learned from first round being like you know big bet on Uber, like big bet on the the mobile era. If I'm mm -hmm. not being too you know whatever. Um, so you've got um, Union Square, and then what does first round teach you that you take out to your own fund? So. I think the couple of lessons that I learned at first round, so I learned personal lessons like knowing that I'm not a great team player. <laughs> because, because like first round's a great firm. Firm, right? It is a company, mm. right? Multiple people work there, multiple people involved in the decision-making process. Like that is the way it is inherently built. It is really, really good at doing that thing. And if you don't fit, 
in that is you. You, you. you don't want that thing, right? Because the way they do that thing is the best at that thing, right? And so, is it, is it culture based or is it thesis based? Like, what sort of inform their uh, structure in that way? I, I just think like Josh is a really good entrepreneur, mm. and and he's just good at building stuff, and and he, he's really good at like sort of. And, and this is this is a skill that I think founders really need is the con- the ability to zoom in and zoom out mm, yeah. constantly, yeah. Mm. and that is a struggle for a lot of people too. So hard to to get into the weeds and yeah. be like the reason why people aren't signing up on our sign up yeah. page is because like this, this little color. thing, right, right? That's throwing them off, yeah. right? But big picture, we want people to think about our brand like this: mm-hmm. constantly zoom in, zoom out, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. um, you can be too in the weeds or high level, and and I think like he's really good at that mm-hmm. um and so uh the uh, the thing I, I the thing i take with me from the first round experience is also the long-term nature of these investments mm-hmm. and when i think about the first round portfolio mm-hmm. there was a time when we were and this is the and this is how group me got done GroupMe was the last deal in our second fund. You should probably just provide context for those who don't know what GroupMe was. Yeah, so GroupMe, well, GroupMe is still like a top 100 app on the App Store. Yeah, Yeah. once football season comes along, like people still use it for their fantasy football. You know, it's funny when it it literally pops up at the beginning of every football season. (laughs) Uh, The people dig up their their, their group chat. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it's really funny when it pops up. So uh, GroupMe is a group chat app, basically, right? And it's nothing that you can't do on WhatsApp today or whatever, but at the time, it, it continues to have a little bit of an audience. But it was born of the TechCrunch Disrupt Hackathon yeah. in 2010 out of New York. And it was just, for, there's no app, it was just chat, it was built on Twilio. Mm. Um, no, all the way back then. And yeah, it was, there was no other way to do group yeah. text messaging in a single that's phone right, that's number, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, I was hanging out at the TechCrunch Disrupt um, uh, hackathon because I thought it was my job. And this is the way I like run my fund. Hmm. Uh, hackers are building things in this space and it's super early. I should be there. Right, because like my job as a fun, as a as an investor should be where innovation is happening. Even though like most of the product projects aren't real projects, with the chance that one mm-hmm. thing right here mm-hmm. right is worth my afternoon hanging out there, right? And and I wound up meeting them there. Um, mm-hmm. It was very contentious as to like whether or not we should do that deal. And it ended in a two-two tie. And at the time, the way it worked was Josh could break ties as the founder of the fund. Mm. Um, and only partners could vote on deals. So I was a principal, so I could lead a deal, but I couldn't vote on it. Mm. I convinced Josh to break the tie because he had said that, you know, our fund too is a solid fund, but there are no clear standouts. And we could use some extra risk mm-hmm. on our last few deals, right? Roblox is in that fund. Wow. Uh, Chris, Chris. Chris Fralick has been on the show to talk about this story, but yes, go right. ahead. Yeah. And, and Roblox took a long time. It was like 2006 really or 2007, yeah. Right? <laughs> We're sitting there. I mean, to sit here and go, and this is why I'm like a little bit of a skeptic on like people's performance in the short term. Mm. This is a long-term asset classes. You don't know how your stuff is going to do. Mm. And on the flip side, like I've had experiences where I've invested in companies like fall of 2019, 
Audrey Gelman's on the cover of Inc. is the first pregnant mm. founder on the cover. The Wing is doing, mm. you know, I forget what the run, $60 million run rate, some crazy mm. run rate. And I was like, oh shit, that's going to return mm-hmm. multiples of my funds. No, I didn't, didn't really see a pandemic coming <laughs> on the horizon, let alone everything else that happened to that company, right? But like, we thought that looking at, in midstream, I mean, that's probably after the Roblox Series B, even, mm. that we didn't think there was a blowout deal in that fund. And that company is a mm, wow. monster, multi-billion dollar company, right? Uber, mm. right. We used to, everybody used to vote, and we would vote from one to five, right? Nobody voted at a five. Wow. One of the best rate returning venture deals of all time. No one thought it deserved a five. It was all fours. It was unanimous. Everybody thought it was a good deal, but a good deal. Not a great deal. Highly regulatory. It regulated industry. At the time, it was luxury, right? Because it was uber black, black cars, Mm -hmm. all of this sort of stuff, right? So I have been humbled over the years as to like what I know and don't know and, and really try and approach things from the perspective of like, how can I still win and not have to be really smart? Like that's that's sort of my approach. But so like going back to I mean like the the real tension though seems to go back to the the tension that we were describing earlier where there's the realist perspective right where Uber Taxi would have been a startup that you're like well given all these you know real realist sort of conditions mm-hmm. will never work and so I guess how would you have gotten to a five where you know I don't know that would have been driven by such optimism that through sheer force of will or timing or any number of things coming together, again, mm-hmm. seeds planted in the, uh, in the marketplace from, you know, the wide distribution of iPhones to GPS, to Google maps, to those things coming together. And then a product experience. I mean, having worked at Uber, right. uh, the, the thing that was so, I think, compelling about Uber for me was that it was one of the first times where internet technology ideas, uh, behavior, interacted with the real world. Real world. Yeah. That was that was huge and that was You're different. Not affecting my yeah. real life experience. That was like that was like the day when I when I let go of my username Factory Joe, my original handle, to use my real name because suddenly I realized that there was no separation between the internet world and the real world. And so mm-hmm. Uber was a similar type of experience like that. So I guess I'm just I'm just very curious about that uh, that question of, of of what would have made that a five and yeah. you know how much were you sort of vacillating or maybe well, pendulating between realism and optimism? I'm going to go back and I should ask Josh actually how many fives I ever gave out. I don't okay. remember. I, I, I would imagine, <laughs> knowing myself, I think fives are probably say, like hard to like a standard to four, like a high, solid like, four. Yeah, I'm a four. Yeah. I, I think this is a worthwhile bet. I like, can whoa, see this working crazy. out, right? But one thing I appreciated about those early Uber pitches yeah. was that despite the fact that Uber came out of a little bit of a Silicon Valley Insiders Club, right? Yep, right. Because Garrett Camp had sold yep. StumbleUpon. Yep. Uh, Josh was an early investor in StumbleUpon. So, like, Travis this had was, done Red Swoosh. Right, right, mm-hmm. exactly. So, this was a group of insiders who, had they come out of left field, may not have gotten mm-hmm. funded, but they still did mm-hmm. the work. Yeah. Part of the original ah. pitch mm-hmm. was the fact that in cities where the number of medallions were capped, 
was there was uh, a lower number of cabs per person mm. than there was in cities where there was sort of a quote unquote free market, right? Yeah. And so we like literally added up like there so the market was not excess working. demand yeah. and, based and, on the medallion yeah, system. If, if all we so, do is take the mm-hmm. chunk of the excess demand, that's right? left over. So despite the fact that huh. these were like insider guys that were probably going to get a check anyway, they did their homework. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and that's one thing that I really really appreciate is hmm. somebody who comes to me with an idea that like there's no chance that they won't get funded based mm-hmm. on like who they are in the space or whatever but they still do the mm-hmm. work because they themselves are mm-hmm. preparing for success mm-hmm. and they know that doing their homework yep. is highly uh, um, predictive of future success um, Chris and I just made eyes at each other because we've been going for almost an hour and a half now. Oh, so you, you have fun editing. You, you, <laughs> we, we don't listen. I don't have time for that shit. Um, <clears throat> let me someone. do. Let me do three rapid fire. Okay. We'll get you back to your daughter. Okay. Okay. Number one, are you seeing uh, valuations go down, or is that a bunch of bullshit right now? Mm. Yeah, certain areas, late stage. They are. Early stage, not at all? Well, so think about early stage to me. I'm like two people on a PowerPoint. And so like I'm still investing in single digit valuations. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that really has The range is going to be still pretty consistent, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Most of the stuff I do is such a ridiculously early stage mm-hmm. that um, I didn't see valuations of my deals come up that much. Um, I do think that people are comparing it to the wrong thing, though. It's like... People are comparing seed rounds to Series A's of well, seed rounds to seed rounds ten yeah. years ago or five years ago, mm-hmm. and that's not the it's case. Totally like, you know, the first Series A that ever got raised in my portfolio in 2013 was like floored, and I think it was like uh, Dave Eisenberg's company. It was like five on twenty. Hmm. Well, well, that's the sort of pre-A seed round right, now. Yeah. It's the same amount of money. It's a decent it's the seed. same yeah. timing from the yeah. origination it's a, it's of the a, company. It's, it's a different just, definition. It's a different definition. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think... This might be an unfair question to be a speed round. Everybody raising $10 billion, $100 billion, Like, the amount of fundraisers right now... I haven't... I, I want to do something on the show about this. Mm. I mean, the size of the funds. Do you think that's a bearish thing? Because the argument I would... I haven't, I haven't thought this out yet. It's a nice way to make management fees. Yeah. It is. And is everybody doing it right now because they feel like you got to strike while the iron's hot? And that's where I feel like it could be bearish. Uh, I don't know what people tell themselves at that stage. I sort of think it's just... The, the, unfortunately, limited partners are always looking in the rearview mirror. Mm. If your last $500 million fund was a top quartile fund, there's going to be a billion dollars of people willing to invest in mm-hmm. you. So, like, the idea that they're, like, they're really that being again. thoughtful yeah. of, I need this to because of the, what the market's going to do, whatever, it's like, no. Fundraising, especially for GPs, is such a pain in the butt mm. that, you know, LPs coming back a truck up full of a billion dollars, you're, you're taking it, right? So I don't know. Is it bearish to the LPs? Would have, I, I think it's almost bearish on the LPs' perspective because I think the LPs 
are looking at their asset classes and going, how the hell are we ever going to add up all these asset classes and get to eight or nine percent forward-looking returns across all these asset classes, right? And you look at historical returns in venture as an asset class, and like you come, you tell yourself that like you should be getting twenty percent out of venture, twenty-five or whatever, right? You're adding that into your mix, and you're convincing yourself and the people you work for that you should get as much venture as you can get your hands on if you can convince yourself that this is a top-tier fund. And I, very rarely, I, I can't think of any time where somebody's like, yeah, these guys were a top-tier fund when they raised a $500 million fund, but I'm very skeptical of their ability to do the same thing with a billion-dollar fund. And so even though I'm getting a $50 million allocation, even though I don't know where else, else I'm going to put it, I'm not going to put in. LPs just don't do that. Um, they, you, Sequoia raises a $6 billion fund to do something, you're getting into Sequoia. You're putting your money in. There's no state pension fund employee that would say no to anything that Sequoia raised. That's just the way the LP side works. So... I don't know how thoughtful they are about future economies. All right, last one. Although, Chris, I, I, I apologize. I do want to make room for you, no, if you it. would. Uh, New York City. Been, been doing this for <laughs> 20 years here. Uh, how do you feel about the startup scene in New York City? When will Chris Messina move here, et cetera, et cetera? What, what, do, you, what do you think about the startup scene right here? It's, you know, there's a lot of renewed excitement from a whole new group of people, um, which is exciting. There's so many, like during the pandemic, kids right out of school moved into Manhattan. Like that hasn't happened <laughs> since like, I moved into, you know, 80, 83rd New York when I graduated uh, from school, you know, 20, 20 years ago. 80th in Amsterdam. Yeah. There you go, right? Yeah. The days of Dormandy and-, and, and Yeah, right, and, Dormandy. <laughs> all of those places. So um, there's, uh, there's a new, crop of folks who are very excited about the scene here, very excited about all that New York has to offer, culture, diversity, the, the excitement, um, which is awesome because now, uh, compared to back when we first met and whatever, the, like when I was in my 20s in the New York startup scene, nobody knew what the hell we were doing, right? Our scene, like the late 90s New York crowd that built uh, the New York Times.com and all these other things, picked up their marbles and went home for five years. Mm -hmm. So the 2005, six, seven, eight vintage of startups in New York was done largely without the mentoring of existing tech companies and all this sort of stuff. And yet still we figured out how to make a bunch of big companies, which was awesome, right? But now- People are sticking around. People are sticking around and you have, you know, uh, product managers who grew up at Datadog and at, at Etsy mm -hmm. and, and you know all of these bigger companies that can now be combined with this influx of new talent and so I, I think the talent pool here is as rich as it's ever been um, every single VC on the planet has done a deal here no one hates coming to New York uh, so it's and even 10 years ago exciting. that was a different scenario 
when, when was 10 years ago? What year is it? <laughs> 2012. 2012. Maybe not 2012. Yeah. 2008. Well, 2008. I, t- I tell you, well, uh, you know, look, one of the ways that I got to first round was because I helped Foursquare raise its initial round of financing. Right. And a lot of people didn't think that the hot new social networking company could be built out in New York. And so immediately after that round became very highly competitive between a few funds, um, first round opened up an office here. Polaris opened up Dogpatch, um, neither of those two things. Well, Polaris, I guess, is still a healthcare fund now, but it's not really a tech fund anymore. Um, Flybridge hired uh, John Stein- Steinberg, uh, who then became the founder of Cheddar, and, and put him here, right? So so funds were, my whole inbox was full of VCs being like, hey, what's what's going on in New York? Looks like there's uh, some competition going on there, right? So, so New York was like initially a bright, shiny object, and there are some deals, but then, you know, some people, you know, like the, the SV Angel guys used to mm. come here once a quarter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then stopped because they were like, there aren't big outcomes here and it's not worth it. Um, I think we have largely gotten over that hump. I think there was a time where it was like, yes, New York's cool for small outcomes. Mm. And if you want to build a thing that somebody's going to buy for $100 million, which even Etsy, when it went public, was kind of on the smallish side. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Etsy's done amazing as a public Mm -hmm. company, Mm -hmm. if you think of their IPO from from now. Um, So, yeah, I think we've gotten over the Flatiron Health deal. I mean, like, you you name the category, there's been a billion dollar outcome in, in the space. And so now I sort of feel like, you know, we're primed. And, and as a city, Look, there's lots of things we need to fix, and we were just talking about the mayoral election and all of that sort of stuff before we started recording, but I think a lot of people are looking at New York as a city and San Francisco as a city and saying, like, mm, San Francisco's got a lot of structural issues as a city that if I'm looking to where I want to plant my life over the next few years, that they feel like New York might be a better spot. Mm. If you're going to be in a big startup city, right? If you want to like hang out in Nashville or, you know, different pace or whatever, hey, that's cool. You don't like weather? Okay, then don't yeah, come yeah, to New York, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. but like if you want to be in one of the top handful of startup places, um, I think people as a city, I think New York has a lot uh, to offer. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. 
Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. You know, just just to, to build on this point, like as you're talking, I do think that one of the things that I'm interested in, I don't know, understanding more of is what will happen post-pandemic, right? Like we've just had the announcement in New York, you know, that the mask mandate is going away. Um, we're having similar um, changes in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And there has been this kind of period where people have, you know, of course, relocated, gone elsewhere. They've become accustomed to working from home and having uh, those those privileges. Perhaps some of those privileges were maybe about to be revoked. Mm-hmm. And so, the point that you make, I think, is is interesting uh, about the maturing of both the New York tech space as well as the investment scene, as well as kind of like the cultural opportunities that exist in New York. New York has always been, in many respects, uh, I think, just a broader, more diversified place when it comes to cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do live in Oakland now, uh, but I feel like when I go to San Francisco, it just feels really carved out and hollow. Yeah. And, you know, like one of the things that, that was probably necessary in the early days of building social networks and social media, ironically, was was how antisocial a lot of people in, like, like <laughs> San Francisco are. You know, That's the problem they were solving for. Well, well yeah. <laughs> Yes, exactly. They're like, I will connect with you through the internet, but I don't really want to see you in person. Right. Whereas New York has always been quite different about that. Anybody will stop and talk to you in the street. Literally, and stop them. literally, and you know that's which I didn't the other day. That was yeah. Nice. I don't know why. Well, that was, you know, that's on you. Post-pandemic sort of yeah. like awkwardness. But anyways, I, like, and, and Miami, I think, is also this weird, um, you know, hybrid of you know people in bathing suits and then people you know working like nonstop. Uh, I don't know on laptops all day long mm-hmm. and those cultures don't quite feel perfectly aligned like whereas i guess what i see happening is like new york does have more of a sense for art and culture which is great for like the nft space and the nft community and then also you know because tech is now kind of like this underlying enabling substrate you know then maybe that actually does bring more of a locus of uh integration between all those different areas that creates a, a different expression of what you know art and technology and the seams of those things that previously were quite um you know split apart dichotomous like come together and it, it, it just feels like i don't know san francisco is, is is somewhat myopic um about i don't know like the world and culture and, and and to bring it back to like where we started this conversation you know there is a question about what tech companies are going to do next and what their responsibility is and how they fit into culture. And there is this Peter Pan syndrome that happens in San Francisco that I feel like, you know, I, I, like I don't want to 
over speak or something, but that you come to New York and it just feels like there's more of, a, of room to be an adult and to act like an adult. And that may be quite not a to, defining you know, aspect. Charlie, not to jump on you real quick, but um, they said that crypto has become the New York city has become the crypto capital recently. I've I, heard that. Yeah. I haven't done that article oh. yet. Maybe I'll do it uh, okay. next week. But the thing that I always say about New York is we're not a one-company town. Right. Yeah. We've got motherfucking Wall Street. Not a one industry. We've well, got in terms of money and finance. Advertising. Right? We've got no. But it's if you go out and you you're sitting at a table and there's people over here mm-hmm. talking about fucking Broadway sure. shows and things like that and like media and like whatever. So that when you're saying that like the ebb and flow of San Francisco, I'm not anti-San Francisco. Yeah. It's not a one-company town here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's always people doing stuff in seven different industries here. And that's the really interesting, but also challenging thing about the New York tech community is that it's not one community. Mm, And that's very hard for people to sort of figure out because you know where the centers of power are in the Valley, Mm -hmm. right? You know that there's a concentric circle around YC and, you know, maybe Stanford or Facebook, Mm -hmm. Google, whatever, Stripe, you know. Um, And a lot of people come into New York and they're like, where do I go to meet tech people, right? And it's funny because it's very hard to go to a a New York tech gathering and not have... um, a super wide range of, they're all lovely people, but like professional quality of, you know, there's some mm. really aspirational people with really terrifically bad ideas. And, and, and then it'll be like, you know, the first product manager at whatever unicorn. Mm. And you're just like, what are you, what are you doing here? It's like, well, I don't know, where else am I supposed to go? Right? Because it's not sort of pedigree based you know, oh, this is the team from wherever that built this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm doing deals where out of the, call it, 100 deals that I've done at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, I think three have run venture-backed companies before. And um, I'm doing deals where literally the founder, I look on LinkedIn, because I know, like, basically all the VCs in New York and a good chunk of them in the Valley doesn't know any VCs. Like, literally, we have no VCs in in common. There's no one starting a company in the Valley (laughs) that doesn't have a VC connection in common with the VC that they're pitching. That's just, like, not even a thing here, right? And it does slow things down a little bit, right? It it, it makes it harder for good deals to to finish their rounds and to get the kind of buzz that actually they deserve and... and, uh, you know, it, it makes it really hard in a noisy environment for VCs to sort of pick out like who's capable and, 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 and who's not because, you know, proxies are good and bad, right? It's like you don't want to just keep investing in the same people all the time. But if you did build that thing for whoever and it works, like that is valuable experience and it is something to, to kind of lean on. Um, but at the same time, it makes the ecosystem a lot more open. Right. So, for example, um, I think it's the twenty third. It's like a couple of Mondays from now. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to? Uh, yeah. Right. Promo anything? Like, yeah. Well, you got so something I, coming so, up? Please. Yes, so please. Figuring out what what 
uh, to do in New York. Um, for the last 12 years or so, I've been running a weekly newsletter of tech events and whatever else is going on. And he does them and he attends with his daughter in a stroller. I've seen it happen. <laughs> uh, he will show up, yes. Um, there's a so the newsletter is nycweeklynewsletter.com. Um, I, it probably has a title next to NYC. I've called it. People just refer to it as Charlie's newsletter. It comes out every Monday morning, um, and it's an event listing and, and whatever other musing. Um, I've been blogging for eighteen years wow. now. At CEO NYC on Twitter. At CEO NYC on Twitter. It's my initials, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm I'm findable, and I put out stuff in places, and I will. Except most podcast invites, especially when they're in my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come, uh, come to uh, Charlie. Will come to your kitchen apparently. And um, uh, Charlie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, yeah, uh, Chris. No, man. This is this is great, man. Uh, it's it's great to catch up again. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And uh, you are welcome in New York anytime. Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate. I like that. Oakland. Oakland's a real place. <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it there, everybody. I think I'll put this out tomorrow. If you're hearing this, uh, whenever I put it out, I put it out that day. So there you go. <laughs> Surprise. Bye, everybody. <laughs>